Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Dearly Father, we do thank you, we do praise you that you are an awesome God, and we do thank you that you've been working through our little church, Father, throughout the summer, and we pray that as the uh, heat beats down on us that we would seek shelter, Father, underneath your wings, that uh, there's nothing cooler or refreshing than a drink of your spirit, Father, on a hot summer's day. I pray, Father, that our soul would seek after you and that we would uh, enjoy your word and uh, enjoy just being together with uh, uh, the present company, Father, people that uh, are of like-mindedness. Father, uh, we thank you that uh, your word is, is refreshing and strong and true. Uh, keep feeding us, Father, and strengthening us day by day. Father, we give you this time. We just ask that you be here in this church tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have been uh, going through uh, uh, the book of Second Kings, and we're seeing that uh, Kings is a succession of history of events. It's a history book, if you would. We're watching a lot of things start to happen. And we're coming into a, a, a phase where really we're underneath the... Uh, the wicked Queen Jezebel. And we're watching, if you would, we don't want to forget the, the, the phase of the, the events that are focusing our mind right now as we're looking at this, is that Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, he had a problem with this wicked Queen Jezebel. And really, Elijah uh, thought he did a great and wonderful act in calling down fire from heaven killing all the false prophets and thought for sure that Jezebel was defeated. Well, Jezebel was not defeated. She hardened her heart even further at this. And it caused our hero, Elijah, to melt away in tears, if you would. He cried like a little baby and threw a little temper tantrum. And God came up to him and said, you know, I've got plans. I've got things for you to do. And if you do what I'm asking you to do, I'll take care of your problem. This Jezebel woman is gone. He was told to replace uh, the king of Aram. You need to put a new king in charge over there, your enemy. So here's the prophet of Israel. One of the things he was told to do was go over to the enemy camp, anoint a king to be the enemy, and have this guy do his job. Then you were to replace a new king over Israel, because this king was terrible, and God said, you put this guy Jehu in charge, and he's going to sit down there and clean house. And then finally, the third thing was, is go find Elisha to be your replacement, because we're going to get another prophet here. And then Elijah failed to do two of those things. He just took Elisha, had him replace himself, and then lo and behold, he goes off and he's taken up into the chariot of fire and he's whisked away into heaven. And now we see Elisha, his ministry, and Elisha's ministry was that he was a softer, gentler kind of guy. He was showing people that God loved and cared and ministered for his sheep. And Elisha's ministry is what we're looking at as we're now going into uh, another king and Elisha's there with Israel and this is the going to be a king. Joram is the king of Israel to the north. Remember that there's two kingdoms, king of the south, king of the north. There's a civil war going on. Elisha is going up to Israel to the king of the north. 
And uh, the wicked king Ahab, who was married to Jezebel, died in battle. Remember that scene? Uh, Ahab thought he could steal this guy Naboth's vineyard. Uh, he went out and murdered this guy Naboth to steal his vineyard. Elijah at the time gets up in his face and says, how dare you turn around and think you're going to steal someone's vineyard by murdering him. Do you think you're going to murder and take possession? You're not going to get away with it. And so King Ahab, lo and behold, he goes out to battle. And as he's out to battle, some archer just randomly pulls the bow, strikes the guy, dies in his chariot and kills him. And then we saw that as he's dead, the dogs are licking up his blood. He's dying in disgrace. It was an embarrassment. And then we saw his other son, Ahijah, take over. Ahijah takes over. I think that's his name, right? It's Ahijah something or other. Ahaziah, sorry. Ahaziah. Ahijah's another guy. Ahaziah is, is his son takes over. His son breaks his legs, says, am I going to get better? And uh, he falls out of the upper lattice, and then uh, Elijah says, no, you're not. And then Joram, his brother, takes over in his place. So now Joram, up to the north now, is, is going to be uh, a king of, of, of Israel, the northern part of the civil war, if you would, between Judah and Israel. And he's going to get presented with a strange scenario here. And it's interesting, it says, as we come into chapter 5, we're going now over to the enemy camp, and we're going to hear about this guy Naaman. Naaman, who was a, uh, uh, of Aram, who was in uh, uh, the enemy, Syria, Aram, that region which Syria was part of. It says, now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, uh, was a great man with his master and highly respected. Why? Because... By him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now, what's that going to mean? The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. So here it is, the man in the enemy camp who was a valiant warrior, he comes up with leprosy. Now the um, Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. So they have a little Israeli girl as a hostage. She's going to become a slave, and she's working in the enemy's camp's home. So she's going to be waiting on Naaman's wife. And so the little girl, as she's hearing that her slave owner, master, is coming down with leprosy, she only says, you know, you've got to turn to God. So she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. I know how you can get healed of leprosy. And leprosy at the time was a disease that uh, was incurable. It's something that wouldn't go away. Leprosy is a, a, a nervous disease. It's, it attacks the central nervous system. It starts to attack, if you would, the, the outer extremities of the body and starts to work its way inward. Sometimes lepers are the people, they, they go up and they're always hitting their hands against the wall because they can't feel their hands and they want to feel pain. They want to be able to feel some type of sensation and then pretty soon it breaks down where the skin starts to get white and flaky and he has already got it progressing to the phase of being white and flaky and it's contagious and once you're a leper, everyone wants to run from you. We know the stories. 
And so here he is, he's coming down with leprosy, he's a valiant man in, in the army, and he's going to lose everything with this disease. And so the little girl comes up to him and says, hey, you got to go check out the God of Israel. Go check out this prophet. He can heal you. He can touch you. So, you know, that's a pretty big task to go in and talk to uh, the enemy. But Naaman went in and he told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel, verse 4. Verse 5 says, Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed, and he took with him uh, uh, ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. So that's an awful lot of chunk of change. Ten talents of silver is talent was somewhere in the ballpark of 70 pounds. So here's 700 pounds of silver. And plus he's bringing in all the 6,000 shekels of gold. So he's bringing in a huge chunk of change with 10 changes of clothes. And he's going to go and he says, we got to go to the enemy. we got to present ourselves correctly to the enemy, Israel. we got to deal with them because we want their God. We want their God to touch me. People in... In desperate situations, do desperate things. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel. So he's marching across the enemy line saying, And now, quote, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you are to cure him of his leprosy. Now, the king reads this, and he's going to be flipping out. He gets this guy, comes walking in. He gets his enemy, comes in and says, would you just take care of my commander-in-chief? I want you to heal him. And his response is not very good. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes, a, a very violent reaction, and said, am I God? Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? What do you think I am? I don't cure lepers. But consider now and see how he is seeking to what? To quarrel against me. He's taking this and he says, I don't cure people. You're asking me to cure a guy. And he's looking at this guy and we're going to understand who Naaman might be in the situation here. I think the plot thickens a little bit because the king is just going through conniptions. He's saying, this is how you're starting a fight. I don't cure leprosy. He could say on the onset at the very minimal, you could look at the king saying, I don't cure leprosy. Who do you think I am? God, I can't do this. You're only here to pick a fight. Now, interesting, according to Josephus, Josephus uh, for us is a Jewish historian. He wrote in around 90 uh, AD. He was a, a key figure for us as Christians. You really want to understand uh, his perspective in life. If we understand that, that uh, Rome destroyed Israel, he was one of the people that led the insurrection against Rome. Uh, he was one of the generals, one of the captains in the army, whatever. He was a high-ranking official, one of the key figures to say, let's go and fight Rome, Josephus was. Josephus turned around and uh, was taken uh, captive. They captured him alive. He looked at the situation and said, Israel's going to lose. And hence, he turned around and became a Roman, if you would, and helped the Romans destroy Jerusalem. Uh, he has a very unique perspective on being on both sides of the aisle. He understood what was going on from the Roman perspective eventually, and he understood what it was to be coming from the, 
uh, is Israeli side. And hence, writing around 90, the man was rather prolific with the pen. He wrote volumes and volumes and volumes. And that's where we get a lot of our information on what the Sadducees were like, what the Pharisees were like. He wrote about all the different things on all the arguments on washing and, 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 and cups and bowls and, and history. And he wrote everything about what Herod was and the history of Herod's family. And we get not just a Christian perspective, but a Jewish perspective on what was going on during the time of Jesus. And he's the one who turns around and he says according to Josephus, that Naaman, it says, if you would, that Naaman was a guy who was a valiant man who stood next to the king of Aram. And it says, if you go back to verse 1, uh, that he was a great man with his master and highly respected. It was respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now, Josephus is the one that tells us that Naaman was the guy who was the archer who was at random, who merely pulled back the bow and killed the king of Israel, Ahab. Naaman's the guy when the Arabs say, hey, who killed the king? And Naaman goes, I was the one that drew that shot. I just went up there and threw the bow. I saw my arrow go down and kill him. And hence, he's vaulted to be the commander-in-chief. He's vaulted to be the hero because he led Israel uh, in defeat as the Arameans are saying, whoa, look what we did. Now, 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 Naaman is now vaulted up here, and he comes down with leprosy, and now he's the one who says, I've got to go to Israel. He's going to go to King Joram. Joram's the son of Ahab. Ahab is the one that died, married to Jezebel. He's now sitting there as the king, and if Josephus is right, you can imagine the intensity of the scene. This guy comes in with a letter from the enemy king saying, I'm here to be healed and Joram's looking him in the eye and says, you're the guy that killed my father. What are you trying to do? Provoke me to a fight? You come marching into my throne room? How dare you come marching in here thinking my God is going to heal you after you killed my father? What an intense scene. What an intense situation. And here he is saying, what do you expect out of me? I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to handle it. I'm going, whoa, that's intense. And that's why he's saying, he says, you're seeking a quarrel against me. You're just in here to provoke a fight. So it says, verse 8, though, doesn't go away at that. And it happened when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. So now the prophet, the spiritual man, is hearing that his king is going through conniptions. And what's the purpose of Elisha? To show people God's love and God's mercy? So Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? What are you so upset about? Don't you have any faith in God? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Hey, you're living as if there is no God, Joram. The whole purpose is there is a God. God's alive on the throne. And if you put God in the midst of your politics, God in the midst of your day-to-day life, you wouldn't have such problems. Your father wouldn't have died in the first place if he wasn't trying to steal and to murder and to kill someone's vineyard. But you pay the price. He says, why have you turned your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. He comes marching up with his entourage, 700 pounds of gold. 
And he stood at the doorway of the house of Elijah. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, okay, now first off, uh, Elisha doesn't greet him at the door, does he? It says, Naaman came, he stood outside the, at the doorway of the house, and Elisha sends a messenger to him. Elisha's like, I told the guy to come see me. I don't want to look him in the eye. You, he doesn't even answer the door, sends a messenger out to him saying, you, this is what I want you to do. You want to be healed? You need to go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Miracle of miracles that happen. Just go down, wash seven times, and it's done. Now Naaman comes all the way tranking across the country to get here. When he hears this, he goes, what do you mean go wash in the Jordan seven times, right? But Naaman was furious. He's enraged. And he went away. He's throwing his helmet on the ground. He's kicking the dirt. He says, behold. What do you mean go wash seven times? I thought he would surely come out to me, listen to this, and stand and call on the name of the Lord is God and have and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. So Naaman, listen to this, he's got a, he's got a, 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 a perspective on how he thinks that God needs to work. When you go, you need to go to the Miracle Crusade down at the assembly hall. They're going to have thousands of people. And, of course, the prophet then is going to walk up and yell and scream and whack you on top of the head. You're going to fall over. And that's how you get healed. And I'll, all of a sudden, Elijah just comes up and says, hey, I don't even want to look you in the eye. Get out of here. Just go down and bathe seven times in the Jordan, and it's done. Naaman's thinking is, Wait a second, you need to jump up and down, yell and scream. We gotta hype up God, get everything going. How dare you tell me that this is all it's gonna take for me to be healed? He couldn't understand it. And so he says, uh, verse 12, he says, Are not Abana and Farapar, uh, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? We got cleaner water at home that's blue. This stuff is mud. And he says, uh, could I not wash in them and be clean? I didn't just come and come all the way over here to take a bath. So he turned and he went away in a rage. And then his servants came near and spoke to him. So finally, this guy comes up to him. One of his assistants taps him on the shoulder. says, excuse me, guy, my father, had the prophet told you to do something, to do some great thing, would you not have done it? So if you were supposed to jump up and down and, and scream and yell for God, you would have done that. Well, how much more then if he says to you, just wash and be clean? He's asked something simple of you. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, an act of obedience. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And so he says, uh, and then he returned to the man of God with all of his company, his whole entourage, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please, please take a present from your servant now. But Elisha turns around and he says, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And then he urged him to take it, but he refused. So now Naaman is understanding. He's going, I get it. God, you asked me to do something simple. 
and you work just by doing the simple things. And it's a beautiful, powerful story. There's a lot of things involved here where you're seeing that you go, you know, if God asks something simple, we have a tendency to reject it just like Naaman. We believe that you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Many times people hear that. When if, if we say, all you need to do is to ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart. You need to say the sinner's prayer. Jesus Christ, I have sinned. I, I need you to come into my life. And, and, and Lord, if you come into my life, I'm going to believe and trust in your son as my savior. And if we say that simple prayer, we know that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. It's as simple as that. And yet so many people, they love to complicate it. They don't think God can work that way. Well, don't you have to, in order to be saved, don't you have to go, go you know, perform all these great works? Don't you have to go to church every single Sunday? Don't you have to change your whole life? Don't you have to like live as a holy person and then you get to go to heaven? And the answer is, is no, it's a very simple process. And so many people reject it because it's so simple. They have a concept just like Naaman. You're supposed to run around and jump and scream in order for God to move. You're supposed to have all these things. Notice what Naaman's real thinking was. If I wanted to be healed, if I really want to be healed, what do I have to do? I got to pay for it. You don't show up to the prophet and, 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 without, and if you want the prophet to dance for you, you better be able to give him an awful lot of cash. So I'm not stupid. See what he's thinking? My gods back in Aram, the, the false gods that I serve, they need to be paid in order for us to get results. And so I better go to see a prophet. My thinking is, is to say, well, I need to come marching down there and, and throw money at him. And God is going to reject me unless I throw money at the man of God. And I'm fine. I think that's the way most people believe today. They're absolutely convinced that God is not going to be for them unless they throw money at God. A lot of people, you turn around, they'll turn around, and, and it's amazing. They'll get sick, they'll wreck their car, something's going to happen. First thing people think of, oh, I haven't been paying my tithes. God, God's not hearing my voice because I haven't been in church and he's cursing me because I haven't been paying my tithes. We always make that quick assumption that whenever there's something wrong in our life, it's because it's a dollars and cents thing. And, and Naaman has this basic thinking saying that in order for me to have God, I better go and throw up a lot of money. Here's 600, you know, 6,000 shekels of gold and seven talents or whatever it is, 700 pounds or, of silver. And you're going, I've got I to put some money down. And God wants to speak to us and, and, and say, you know what? I, I love you. I care about you. And even Elisha turns around. He could have easily accepted the money. He says, look, I didn't ask for it up front. I didn't sit down and do anything. But he says, I'm trying to teach you something, Naaman. I'm trying to teach you that God loves you and that he doesn't need your money. I'll reject the money. That's powerful. It would be nice to see when, when a church can turn around and says, no, just keep your money. We don't want it. No, you don't need to pay money. It's not about money. It's about you and God. God loves you. God cares about you. How further do you think you could get from God than being an enemy of Israel? How further do you think Naaman was to say, look, I'm the guy that killed the king of Israel. I've got to humble myself, crawl up to the king's son of the guy that I killed and said, can I please be healed by your God? 
Lord, we have to get this thinking out of our head that it's always purchase something, buy something. I've been emailing my mom this week, and I was telling a couple of people last night at the prayer meeting, uh, she sent me a, a, a strong email about, uh, if you remember two weeks ago, I talked about my dog Tippy dying, and uh, I said, I wonder if my mom actually, you know, just put the dog to sleep or, uh, you know, uh, and I said, my mom knows the truth or whether she was just telling me a story of uh, how they needed to put the dog for a $600 operation to save its life, and I said, I think they just put the dog to sleep, and my mom wrote me back a long email saying, I am sorry, we fought hard to keep that dog alive, and, uh, and, and it was amazing because uh, she wrote this long email because I, I had an older sister. When I was four, she was eight. <clears throat> she was the oldest, and she died of aplastic anemia, <clears throat> which didn't mean a whole lot to me when you're four years old that your older sister dies. But she died a, a painful death. Uh, it took a year or so for her to die. Uh, aplastic anemia is when you don't make red blood cells. Most people have problems not making white blood cells. But she couldn't make red blood cells. And, uh, and now I think it's curable. If she had it today, she would be alive. But uh, when she died, and my mother sent this whole story on how she was trying to teach us <coughs> uh, on the value of life. And she didn't want us to think that, okay, now the dog is sick. Is What we do is we just put the dog to sleep. And she was saying that, uh, no, uh, uh, we wanted the fight to keep that dog alive, to say that when you're sick and when you're down and out, we don't just kill you. That's not what happened to Chrissy. That's not what we're going to do with the dog. That's not the value of life. And I was like, wow. Uh, and, and it meant a lot to say that we fight for these things. And, and, uh, and yet, uh, with my oldest sister dying, it destroyed my father because my father was raised a Catholic boy. He was raised with all the guilt and condemnation of the Catholic Church, uh, a whole generation of things that hopefully have changed in a little bit, you'd think. <clears throat> but it caused my dad just to drink himself silly, knowing that his daughter died. All he could do is blame himself. And hence, alcoholism, you know, uh, creeps in. It just starts to go rampant in his life. He's now beating my mother. My parents get divorced after my sister dies. And you can see that there was somebody in my family, my father, who was underneath a lot of guilt, thinking that God is so far and away. And, and I have this strange God that's up here who I don't know, but yet he's going to come and take my daughter, my father would think, and hence I hate my God now because how could he do such a thing? And God is complicated. God is there. And, and there was so much bondage, I think, in my father's life. He's now passed away. Of, of God is just so difficult to get to. Uh, you have to jump through a thousand hoops to please God. And somehow or another, if you miss one little thing, then God is not pleased. Uh, my father was someone who never missed Mass his whole life. His whole life. He never missed Mass. Uh, when he died, we were at the funeral. He's there with uh, one of his best friends stood up and spoke up. One of his best friends through high school and college. And he said, you know, Jack, you know, my father, he never missed Mass. No matter what happened on Saturday night, he would wake up and go to Mass every Sunday. He had uh, 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 just this fear of God that he had to do something. And then when Chrissy died, my sister, he never went to Mass again, never went to church. 
And I can remember growing up, and now it all starts to make sense. He'd just say, you know, he'd give me a dollar, and then I'd walk up to the Catholic Church. I'd sit in Mass, and, and then I would, you know, put the dollar in the plate and walk home, and I didn't know what I was doing. But you see the, the, the religion, the rote, the, the, the pattern, and, and no one ever knowing the simplicity of God and never understanding that, you know, God loves you. And when I finally got to be 22, 23 years of age, I sat in the Calvary Chapel, and I just heard Chuck Smith turn around and say, you know, uh, you need to have the blood of Jesus Christ or else you're not going to go to heaven. You're going to burn in hell. And I go, I never heard that before. You need to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. And I go, well, that's pretty important. Now, how can I grow up my whole life virtually being in church every Sunday? And I was raised Catholic. I went to a United Methodist Church for a long time, went through a lot of other things. Nobody ever told me you just have to believe in Jesus Christ and you can go to heaven. And I'm like, how can you live your whole life and never understand that basic truth and yet never hear it? And then once you hear it, you go, it's just that simple. I just have to believe in Jesus Christ and I go to heaven. I have to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, sure, I want to go to heaven. Hey, you know, I'll be the first. Lord, you know, come into my life. You know, uh, if that's all I got to do, I'll, I'll do that. I want to go. And yet so many people miss that. They go to church repeatedly, religiously, and they never understand the simple truth. Just like Naaman. What do you mean? Just go wash. You're supposed to jump up and down. You're supposed to scream. You're supposed to yell. you got to have the priest in the big cloak come out and wave all the smoke all over you, and then you don't even really know what's going on, but trust me, that's real religious. you got to have that stuff happen in your life. No, that's death. And it leads to confusion of people so that they live their whole life thinking that God is a million miles away from them and hates them. I live in guilt. I live in fear. I don't know where God is. And he's just a big guy that's behind the screen. And he comes out and he punches me every now and then and kills my daughter. And if that's what God is, well, let me just drink myself silly because I can't figure out life. And, and the Bible comes up and says, just go out and wash in the Jordan seven times. Well, just go out and wash yourself in the blood of Jesus then you'll be saved. What? And that's our reaction. So many times we sit down and go, I can't believe that. I want to sit down and have a God that tells me to do, I have to do 100 push-ups and give tithes and that I know that I've done something as I've done my push-ups and give my tithes and, and I'm going to please God because look how good I am. God says, shut up. It's not anything to do with how good you are. It's basically on how good God is. And God is a loving concerned God you can't pay for it you can't give any amount of money that is going to satisfy God you cannot buy God with anything that's the whole deal there in Acts chapter 8 Simon the sorcerer is coming up to Peter and James and John they're watching Peter and James and John laying hands on people. He's watching the baptism of the Holy Spirit going on. They're coming up and saying, in the name of Jesus, bam, miracle, bam, miracle. Great things are starting. Man, you're in the gall of bitterness. Your heart is hardened and corrupt. You can't buy these things. How dare you even think that? And yet, that's exactly the way we think, that we can buy our way into the kingdom of God, that if we do enough works, that we can accomplish certain things. If we yell and jump around, raise our hands, think something's going to happen, we're just like Naaman, and we think, oh, this is exactly what it's going to be. And God says, no, I love you. That's all it is. The, the Christianity is just so simple. 
You don't have to be able to read Greek. You don't have to understand the Hebrew. You don't have to have a, a, a degree in theology in order to understand God. God loves you. He'll explain himself to you, and he wants to. Even if you are the, 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 the enemy of God and his people, he'll still work with the Naaman, and he says, I care about you. I still heal you. God wants to make it known that there is a God. He wants to reveal himself to you. He cares about you. So his servant is right, saying, you know what, if it's just something simple, is that so hard you're willing to do something difficult? Why don't you just do the simple thing? And so he's learning a powerful lesson. Verse 15, when he returned to the man of God with all of his company, he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please, take a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. So Elisha rejects it, and he urged him to take it. Naaman begs him again, but he refused. And Naaman said, Now this is where it gets weird. He says, If not... He says, please let your servant at least be given, um, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will uh, no more offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Now watch what's going to happen here. Naaman's going to turn around and says, I just want to take a, a couple mulefuls, give me a few sandbags full of dirt to go. Can I do that? Now, why does he want that? He says, uh, because he's saying, why? Because he doesn't want to sacrifice any more to other gods, but to the Lord and to the Lord alone. So Naaman's saying, okay, I got a problem here. I got to go back home, okay? And if I go back home, I'm going to be asked to go into my, my, my idol temple and worship there, and I don't want to look bad. So I'm going to have to walk into my idol temple. Listen to this. In, in this mat matter... May the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. Rimmon would be the idol god, the god of Aram. And he's saying, when my master goes in there, other words, the king, Ben-Hadad, right, uh, was the king of Aram. And uh, Naaman is the right-hand man of Ben-Hadad. He goes, i got to go into my master's house with the king, and we're going to have to worship in the house of Rimmon. He's an idol. And I know that your God's not going to like that. But I'm asking you a favor, because I'm in a political dilemma here. I'm asking to take a couple bags of sand, because I'm going to have to go into the house of Rimmon. And he says, and when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him from some distance. Now, this is mind-boggling. This is a, 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 a bizarre, I'd like to think, exception to the rule. Elisha is saying, you know, I understand that you're going to have to go back to your house and your idol, and you're going to have to go out there and do something stupid. It's not going to be right, but I know in your heart you're going to know who the true God is. And so what he's asking for is to say, look, I want to take a couple bags of sand. I'm going to lay them down at my feet so that I understand that I'm, I'm worshiping really in my heart the God of Israel. That's what I'm kneeling on, Jewish sand, even though I'm in the presence of my God, Rimmon. 
and, and here I am. I, I'm, I, I'm going to have to worship this idol when I go home, but I don't really want to in my heart. And Elisha is saying, I understand. Whoa! If that is not the strongest picture of grace you could ever imagine. And God, I think sometimes when we do, we go before the Lord and says, Lord, you want me to get saved? You want me to do all these stuff? And we say, Lord, there's so many changes I have to make in my life. And, and, and Elisha is saying, he says, I understand it's going to take time for you to get to where you need to be. And if it causes you to have to go into the God of Rimmon, go in peace? Got a hard time with that one. And Elijah is showing the God of Israel does not come up and make demands. This is where you think you are? Then you're going to have to walk through those things? God of Israel, the whole purpose of Elijah is to say God is a softer, gentler kind of guy. He's kinder. And you're just going, Phew. Now it's interesting, the word Rimen, there is no God of Rimen uh, that the Arabs worshipped. His name was Raman. Uh, Raman was what they, the Syrians, would call, but as it's written in the, the Bible, Rimen is actually a mocking term. Uh, Raman was the god of thunder, and that was the term of Hadad, the god that they worshipped, which was a storm god. So really, he's saying, can I go worship Raman? But whenever a Jew, they won't say the proper name they're going to call him really it's called pomegranate is what they're calling him <laughs> they're saying saying oh you know it's kind of a mocking term whenever it, they do that a lot all the gods the false gods in the bible when the jews are writing it down they're going ah oh, we'll call the guy they change a few letters and they call him pomegranate which 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 if you know more about pomegranates pomegranates were were kind of like they look like a tomato but they had like a million different seeds in them and if you took one and dried one out, then it, it, you could rattle it. And you, they would actually take them and put sticks on them, and a kid would have a rattle. It would be a rattle, right? So uh, to, to call somebody pomegranate, right? So this is thunder, and they're going, oh, let's call. They change the letter, and they call them pomegranate, right? And they're going, if you got to go over there and play around with your pomegranate, then, you know, if that's what you think you have to be, then, then so be it. And... Uh, and then it makes sense if you know that Hadad was the storm god, which was his name, but they called him Thunder. And, uh, and then Ben-Hadad, right, we talked about, which was the king of Aram, is really a title. Ben, like Ben-Hur, means son of Hur. Ben means anything. So this would be son of Hadad. So it's a position. It's the king. So we're going to see a lot of Ben-Hadads go through the story. And you're like, how old is this Ben-Hadad? He's been around for 200 years, you know. And... Uh, and really, it just means president, king, or leader, or Ben, son of Hadad, our, our storm god, which is just like Baal, which was the, the god of the, the fertility, god of rain. They were worshiping the, the sky gods, you know what I mean? The, the thunder, the rain gods, you know, some Indian, native Indian type thing, if you would. And, uh, and so they're calling them Rimen, which is, uh, I have to go to the house of Rimen. So there's a little mockery in there, and there's a little thing of, of, uh, Elisha still allowing huge amount of acceptable grace. And I, I, this story just sticks out in your mind sometimes and you really want to be judgmental and rip somebody apart. And you see that there are people that are Christians and they're struggling and they're compromising greatly. Uh, this story at least speaks to me sometimes to continue to show love and mercy. 
And, and mercy triumphs over judgment, people. Uh, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, Scripture tells us. That's, uh, uh, you know, Romans chapter 2. Uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. And when we do, we want, to, we, we want to present God in such a fashion that people can understand to trust to do the simple things that we're asking. Because people have this viewpoint that they got to jump up and down. they got to scream. they got to yell. they got to go out and have this great prophet go out and to do all these things. And people want that. Pastors want that. They want people to say, I can't do anything without Pastor Dave's blessing. I can't do anything without a priest or some holy man of God uh, uh, giving me a blessing. What is, what's someone else going to say? And God hates that, that you would trust that someone else needs to give you a certificate of approval to get to heaven. He hates that. We need to turn around and say, Lord, I don't need any man. Let every man be found a liar, but God be found true. Our, our responsibility is not to go to a priest, not to go to somebody who's got to yell and scream and be real spiritual. And there is a tendency with inside of all of us to think that that is God. We have a tendency to think that just because it's, you know, the crusade night and, and the big preacher's down there yelling and screaming, if we actually go up and meet him, he's a real holy man. We start esteeming one man above another. And God says, that's disgusting in my view. Uh, that man, you know, I got to, you know, touch that guy, talk to that guy. He, he's such a holy man of God. That's wrong thinking. God wants to say, talk to me. I'll touch you. I will be there for you. I can remember when I first met Carla, we had been going together for probably a week. And we were in Chuck, you know, Chuck's church, you know, in Costa Mesa. Huge 3,000 people were sitting there. And, uh, and Carla was reading, Chuck was, was reading this passage of uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah. And Carla was reading out of the Living Bible. And uh, she's reading it in her lap. And, and Chuck says, uh, as he's reading Abraham, and Abraham goes to, has the three angels come up and visit him. And uh, uh, he goes, quick, quick, Sarah, go. Go make three measures of meal or something is what it says. But in the Living Bible, it says, it says, quick, Sarah, go make some pancakes, right? <laughs> so Carla's reading the Living Bible, and there's 3,000 people in church. All of a sudden, Carla starts laughing because she's reading, quick, Sarah, go make some pancakes, right? And she goes, that is so dumb. And she's laughing out loud. And here I am thinking I'm on like my second or third date with this girl. And she's laughing. And there's you know, all these people there. And she's <laughs> like, well, just Chuck's teaching. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I don't know this girl, you know? so i can remember you know and then here we are we're on the side of the aisle and then chuck smith when he's done preaching you know chuck smith walks right by us and i was like wow that's like the closest i've ever gotten to chuck i was like three people away i could have reached out and touched him you know and then i was like you know this was so cool you know and then i'm talking to carl and carl's like oh you know i was laughing because it said quick sarah go make some pancakes you know and she goes, oh, you know, I'm going to go up and tell Chuck that. And I'm going to go, you're going to go up and talk to Chuck Smith, you know, the man that's teaching around the world and all the things that are happening. How can you do this? She goes, oh, yeah. And Carla, you know, she walks right up and Chuck's there. Hey, Chuck, did you get this? And then her and Chuck are, ha, 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 you know. Chuck's laughing and everything. And you got to get that out of your mind that, you know, Chuck Smith's just another man. He goes, I'm just like anybody else. 
And when you really be around Chuck, you, you appreciate that out of him, that he's just like that. But yet, there's that thinking inside of us that says, well, here's somebody, he's a great man of God. Here's somebody, when I go talk to him, then I'll be healed. And, and that thinking destroys us, and God hates that thinking because we don't need to seek, you know, Chuck Smith or Billy Graham or whoever we idolize. We need to seek Jesus Christ. And if we, if we, if we, say, Lord, come into my life. You're asking the Son of God to come into your life. What's another man? God's saying, I'm going to come up to you if you're an enemy of mine. I'm still going to love you. Do you really think you have to pay your tithes in order to have me work in your life? I think that offends God. And so many times, I've done it a thousand times, when, when something is wrong in my life, I go, if I'd only been doing this, I, I, oh, I'm behind on my daily Bible read. That's what it is. I wrecked my car because I'm behind on my daily Bible read. God, I'm sorry. I'll pick up the pace tomorrow and I'll catch up. God, I haven't, I miss church. I, I haven't been paying my tithes. And we fall into that mindset. And, and I can't find a more extreme case in the Bible where he's going up and he's saying, go in peace. I love you. You're, you're an enemy of Israel. You killed the king of Israel. God used you. God wanted this guy killed. It's all in God's plan. And you know what? If you're going to go over to your idol's house, in time, it's going to make you, it's going to make you sick anyway. And you're going, to, you're going to be able to walk away from it. I'm convinced of that. But he's allowing him the freedom to grow. And true grace in Jesus Christ is freedom to grow. Where God comes up and says, I love you. I love you. you you'll feel that. You'll change because of it. And you got me, Jesus. That's all you need. God's working. And I just... Strong story, but doesn't quite end there. It says, verse 20, but Gehazi, now Gehazi last week was our hero, where Gehazi was the one who said, why don't we give this lady a baby, and he was uh, the one that figured it out and helped him. We're going to see Gehazi now make a fool out of himself. He's not understanding God either. Gehazi was Elisha's right-hand man. It was uh, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, the one who used to wash his hands for him. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, man, we're missing a beautiful opportunity. This guy just came in with a chunk of change. We're starving to death. We're trying to, remember, we were peeling gourds and we had to eat wild gourds, okay? We were sitting down there starving to death. There's a famine in the land. We threw the wild gourds in the pot, and we were all going to die. But Elijah threw the meal in there so that we could have some stew because we're just scavenging up some wild gourds. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 6,000 talents of silver would go pretty nice right about now. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the uh, Aramean. Notice he said, spared him. Like, how dare he let this guy off the hook? He should have killed him by not receiving from his hands what he brought. He should have taken his cash. As the Lord lives, I will run after him. See how he says that? I'm not going to let this, you know, uh, uh, golden pig walk away. Man, we're going to take this. I'll run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. He's chasing him up the street there. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him. And he said, it's all well. What's going on, buddy? And he said, um, all is well. You know, but my master sent me. Lie. 
he sent me saying, behold, you know, stranger than fiction, you know, something just happened, saying, behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please, give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. You know, you got a boatload of cash. Why don't we just take a little bit back? And It's for the missionaries. It's for the children. We got some missionaries coming back in from the field. They could use it. We changed our mind. Need a little cash flow. Naaman said, fine. No problem. Naaman said, uh, be pleased to take two talents. Take whatever you want. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to his servants. Other people were involved in this conspiracy. And they carried them before him. And then he came to the hill. He took from them their hands and deposited them in the house, hides them away, and he sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in, and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Oh, nowhere. Sure, we went nowhere. Just went out talking to God. And he said to him, Did not my heart go with you? I was with you. Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? I was there. You can't hide anything from me. Is it a time? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Is this the time to be worried about cash? God's trying to speak to you about love and mercy. We need to speak to our enemies about love and mercy. And you're only looking at the dollar for the bottom line. Give me a break. No, we'll give you. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cleave to you and to your descendants forever. You want his money? You can have his disease as well. Because he had the disease and he thought his money meant nothing. And if you think his money means something, then have his disease. So he went out from him in his presence, a leper, as white as snow. Now what a curse. The line is, did not my heart go out with you? And throughout this whole passage, you're realizing that God is saying, you know what, I can show you love and mercy and grace. And what we need to understand is just as Elisha went with him in spirit, went with him in heart, and Elisha could sense that his servant was betraying him. God looks at you and I and he says, you know what, I love you. And I understand if you're going to be in a difficult position, you think you've got to sin. But you understand one thing. God tells you, I'm with you. I love you. And if you think you've got to go run around and sin and God gives you the total freedom, the thing that haunts us is that Christ is in us. Christ dwells with us. Christ is there. And if we're going to go run around in sin and debauchery and say, you know, God understands. I'm going to go over to my little house of Rimmon tonight. <laughs> I heard that, you know, Elisha let Naaman go. So off I go, off the play. You only got to understand one thing. Jesus Christ is in you. And if you're over there in your little house of rimming, you got to say, you got Christ with you. And for anybody, that's what we miss in Christianity is that 
he sits down and says, Lord, I don't want to be doing this. And sometimes I've been right on the thrones of sin or anger or bitterness or whatever it is. You're doing something stupid. And I go, you know, God's looking at me, and I don't want him to be seeing me doing something this stupid. Here I am. I'm acting like an idiot. God sees me. And for a believer, that and that alone is the motivation to say, I don't need to be doing this. I don't want to shame Jesus Christ. He's sitting right there. He's my co-pilot. He's right there in the car next to me. he's, He's right here in the room with me. He's right in my heart. And just as he says, didn't you know that my heart would go with you? You thought you could run over here and grab money? You think this is cute? You think we need to have cash? God is trying to do everything he can to show you that it is not based upon money, not based upon anything. This is the pure, unadulterated word of God showing grace and mercy and love. And yet we can't accept it. We don't want it. And we think, just like Gehazi, that we're going to be sneaky little people and sneak behind someone's back, take a little gold and bury it someplace and say, well, you know, that's fine. Well, then fine. What do you think you're fooling? Leprosy upon you. We, we, walk, we walk before the Lord when we say, Lord, I'm hurting. I need help. When you can be like Naaman and say, I know I've killed the king of Israel. I've got to go up to his son and look him in the eye. I, you, I can't picture a, a stronger illustration of humility to walk up to the son of the guy that you killed that promoted you to be the mighty, valiant warrior of Naaman. Because you were just, whoo, you know, threw an arrow up there. You don't think Naaman was saying, what did I do to deserve to be this great man of, of Aram? I just, whoo, threw an arrow up there. And my arrow happened to kill him. And all of a sudden, he's promoted to be the right-hand man. And now he gets fame and fortune. And how did he get all this money? Because of dumb luck. Well, how do we get anything in life? Dumb luck. It's because God provides. Yet we turn around and we want to sneak, we want to connive, we want to, we want to go to God with all these manipulative little ideas. And God's like, I love you. Don't you get it? I love you. It's just that simple. I love you. And if you ask me to come into your heart, you know where I'm going to be? I'm going to be with you every single day from here on out for eternity. And so now we have God with us. How can we go out and do anything? God knows that. And if we're truly a believer, we're going to feel that. You're going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit alone, he'll convict you not to be following into sin, acting like an idiot, and doing the dumb things. And we can turn around and say, Lord, that's all I want. I want you, and I'm not in it for the money, and I'm not in it for anything else. Everything else is blah. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do praise you that you are an awesome God, Father. We thank you for your love and for your mercy. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that's confused over you, that they would be able to reach out and just to say a simple prayer, to ask you to come into their lives, to confess themselves as a sinner and needing help. Father, I pray that you would take that heart and fill it with your spirit and that we, Father, could have you with us wherever we go. Father, help us not to reject you for complicating things, but accept you as being simple and true and full of love. Father, you're an awesome God, and we thank you for your word and your study tonight, Father. We thank you for being here. Your word tells us wherever two or three are gathered, you're here in the midst. So, Father, I pray that we would sing to you as a God that is here with us and that we would worship you, Father, in spirit and in truth. 
Father, we thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.